What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. Another Friday, another episode of Why Are We Bullish? And damn, we have a killer panel here this evening. Very excited to have everybody on the show. Um, we have a return guest and a couple uh, brand newbies to the show. Um, of course, I know them, uh, but I'm first time on, on a Friday panel, so I'm very excited to have them all. We'll do some intros momentarily. Uh, of course, this is live Anything can happen. So as usual, I'm going to defer to my friend Bill here. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll, no. we'll do it live. Fuck it. Do it live. I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live. And thing sucks. If you have not already, please do like, subscribe, share that little like button. It's just right below the screen there, and it really does help a ton when you tap it. So give it a little love tap if you can. I am Ben with the BTC Sessions. This is your daily session. Huddle the Bitcoin. Before we bring in our panel, let's take a quick look at where we are in the market right now. This is timechaincalendar.com. We're sitting at $26,909 per coin. A single US dollar will grab you 3,716 sats. In terms of fees, looks like uh, everything's being purged. It would seem that uh, uh, blockchain JPEGs are, are not is in as high demand today. Uh, six sats per byte across the board. Um, just beware if you're sending anything sub three sats per byte, it may be purged from the mempool. And in terms of Bitcoin mined, 19.5 million of them. That's 92.86% of the entire supply. Shout out to sponsors of the show, hodlhodl.com. So if you're stacking sats and uh, you have certain priorities in mind, like peer-to-peer -peer trading, instant self-custody, and no KYC, you can sign up here with nothing more than an email address. Once you're in, choose a currency payment method and amount and start browsing offers immediately. Stack in non-KYC sats. They also have a lending platform where nothing is ever rehypothecated. You can check them out with the links down below. Now, of course, storage is important. You want to secure your sats with some of the best hardware on the market. CoinKite, you know I love them. The Cold Card Mark IV is my go-to. I have all their other goodies like tap signers, sats cards, block clocks, all that stuff. And I've pre-ordered my Cold Card Q1, which I'm very excited. They've been teasing that on Twitter a bunch. So... Uh, I hope Rodolfo has socked one away from me. Anyways, if you want to reserve that or pick up anything here, go to coinkite.com, use code BTC sessions for 5% off everything in the store. Um, of course, backups are important. Uh, you guys probably saw my recent um, review slash video on the CDOR, which is a super robust uh, steel backup system, uh, capsule and disc design um if you want to learn more about them and then everything's all there but uh the starter set comes with everything you need for either one or two seeds depending on what version you get and these guys are awesome uh so be sure to check them out uh nunchuck you know what i'm going to talk about them spoiler alert i'm going to talk about them a little bit in the show so we'll we'll chat about them when we when we get into things because they just dropped some exciting stuff the past little bit and last shout out here i want to give a shout out to start nine uh sovereign computing solution uh so this is where you can use a plug and play device to run your whole bitcoin stack and a whole bunch of other things so bitcoin core lightning node mempool.space files passwords photos nostr relays even a ton of different stuff here they've got plug and play devices from like entry level all the way to what I'm running, which is the start nine server peer. So you can check them out, start nine, 
com. Anyways, with that, I'm going to stop my ranting. Let's get our guests in here. Let's uh, let's get rolling here. Uh, so I want to welcome to the stage Anita and Steve and Lynn. I'm so glad to have you all. Thank you for joining me. And uh, and for those unfamiliar, and actually, you know what? We're, we'll we'll bring in one other, which is the audience. So uh, everybody that's in the chat, I've seen your messages coming in. Uh, but now everything, for better or worse will be right alongside us as we chat. So uh, uh, feel free to uh, throw in your comments and questions on the side there. But nonetheless, let's do a round of intros before we dive in. Um, I'll toss it to Anita first. Welcome to your technically first time on the show. Can you give yourself an intro? Sure. Thank you very much for the invitation. I waited a long time for that, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, my name is Anita Posh and I'm a Bitcoin educator and uh, most uh, work I have been doing in recent years in the Southern African region uh, with my nonprofit initiative, Bitcoin for Fairness, because I believe that these are the countries and the places where people need Bitcoin really the most. And I'm a book author, and also now I have a new program called Crack the Orange, which is a membership and online learning program for newbies and people who want to learn more about Bitcoin. And also it's a train-to-trainer program because I want to help uh, share knowledge to build more Bitcoin educators on the ground. Because in African countries, in those I uh, visited, I experienced that there uh, is really a lack of well-educated uh, people to uh, share the Bitcoin uh, idea. And that's what I'm doing at the moment. I love that. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. I think it's very important um, that those regions of the world uh, get a little extra TLC um, because they often get neglected and, um, you know, Bitcoiners should focus some energy down there for sure. Um, awesome. Well, Steve, I'm going to toss it to you. Uh, thank you also for joining first time on the show. Can you give yourself a little intro? Yeah, pleasure to be here. Uh, longtime fan. And uh, so I lead Swan Private for Swan Bitcoin. That's uh, Swan's high net worth division. We do have a whole team set up to doing concierge white glove calls with high net worth investors that are looking to navigate Bitcoin. And, you know, we help orange pill those people, get them set up, help navigate self-custody, have help navigate any questions they have. It's been uh, such a pleasure doing it. I've, I've run that side of the house for three years. And um, I mean, just worked with thousands of people across the globe and heard their Bitcoin stories and, you know, why they're getting into it and what they're interested in. It's just been such a rewarding uh, process and journey. So that's what I do. And I'm also uh, well known on uh, Twitter for being the walking and sunlight guy. I, you know what, I've thoroughly enjoyed seeing that you're doing effectively walking podcasts now, which is, which is great. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Uh, if, if you ever need a walking guest, uh, I will gladly come join you in a walk in my part. And, and unless it's, minus 30 degrees here even still that might make for a good episode so we'll, we'll see well you just signed up for it so it's happening. <laughs> awesome i'll bundle up then awesome uh lynn it is very good to see you welcome back to the show for those unfamiliar can you give yourself an intro uh, so happy to be here i'm an analyst uh i i do most of my work on lynnalden.com I recently published Broken Money, uh, a book on the history of money and the current and future state of potential money, like directions that money can go in. Um, 
I'm also a, you know, I work with uh, Ego Death Capital, which is a Bitcoin-only venture fund. And I'm on the board of directors for Swan Bitcoin, so I have a, a bit of a connection with Steven. I'm a little bit surprised to see that he's sitting right now, at least as far as I can tell. Um, I've learned a lot from his sunlight and his walking uh, expertise. And I want to give an extra shout out to both Ben and Anita, um, because what I like to emphasize in my work is the harder aspects of Bitcoin. Um, and so it's easy to sell Bitcoin to high net worth individuals, why they may want to protect them. Uh, protect themselves with, say, you know, for example, a, a non-dilutive currency and things like that. But, you know, when Ben goes out and, you know, just like uh, with item after item after item, shows people how to use various Bitcoin hardware or software things, that's a very important part of the ecosystem. It's not necessarily yeah. the most profitable, but it's very important. And when Anita goes to Africa and shows people how to use hardware wallets, brings hardware wallets to people, shows them how to use Bitcoin in the most sovereign way possible, and then focus on the education. Um, I, I think those are the, among the most important things. And so those are the things that I try to do my best to support in either my articles or my books. Um, the same is true, for example, for Alex Galassian of the Human Rights Foundation. These types of work are not necessarily the the get rich quick most profitable angle that you see in the broad crypto space. Um, and you know, I, I the funny thing is, I recently saw Peter McCormack in his recent podcast. He had Nick Batia on uh, in his Australia like live event, and Nick shared the fact that you know he's running a class on Bitcoin over in, in, in California, and he found that more people in his class traded Shiba Inu than had a Bitcoin hardware device, Wow, which is alarming. Oh, and, oh my God. and so that's why the work of Ben and Anita is so important, because both in California and throughout Africa or wherever where else we're talking about, that that latter is obviously the most important thing, and yet it's it's often the less profitable thing. So I'm really giving a big kudos to the work they do. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Very kind. Um, well, awesome. I I guess we'll we're gonna roll right into it again. Everybody, I'll, I'll say everybody in the chat. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm already getting comments on. Uh, how horrible my posture is compared to Steve. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, Steve, Steve has excellent posture. I know everybody. Thank you for pointing it out. Uh, nonetheless, we're going to dive in. Uh, so if anybody's joining us here in the audience that is unfamiliar with the show, very simple concept. This is called Why Are We Bullish? And each one of us comes with a reason for being bullish in and around Bitcoin. Now, this reason can take many forms. Whatever the person is currently excited about, it could be, um, you know, it could be a world event, it could be an app, it could be, uh, a, you know, a blog post or a new piece of technology or really anything that that is relevant or a personal experience even. Um, so it takes whatever form. The flow of the show is one: somebody drops a reason for being bullish. That's their chance to kind of rant and discuss what they're excited about. Number two, all together, we're going to riff on it. Comments, questions, whatever rabbit holes we want to go down. And then number three, finally, we're going to rotate to the next person until we've all had a turn. So reason, riff, rotate, repeat. Uh, we're going to dive right in. Um, I'm going to get us started off the bat here with um, my reason for being bullish. And it's 
it's I'm, I'm going to focus in on on one particular app and and company, but I, I think it has broader implications than just what these guys have done and begun to roll out. So um, I'm going to pull up a, a, an article here uh, from Bitcoin Magazine, um, but this is about uh, Nunchuck launching a collaborative Bitcoin custody platform. And so you know a lot a lot of people are familiar with the idea of like a, a, a collaborative multi-sig where a company holds a key for you and then you hold the remainder of the keys and they're kind of like your signer of last resort. And of course, Nunchuck does this, Unchained does this, Casa does this. There's a lot of ways to do it. And you can also create your own multi-sigs. Um, and I guess I should take a little step back from that is anybody that doesn't know multi-sig basically think, uh, a vault for your Bitcoin that requires multiple keys or multiple um, multiple hardware devices to unlock. Um, Nunchuck has done something interesting with uh, something that they're rolling out called Byzantine. And what they've turned their software into is, is kind of like a software as a service um, where you can kind of use their suite of tools, mm -hmm. but you become an actual advisor to others that becomes mm. the person that is holding the, the, the last resort keys. And so you can, as an individual, maybe as, as an educator, or again, like I guess their term advisor, you could have a bunch of people that you typically help through their Bitcoin setup. And you can say, Hey, we can do this thing where like, I'm, you know, it's, it's a, it's a level beyond just an uncle Jim kind of level. Um, and so they're they're basically kind of renting out the tools again, software as a service for advisors that want to create their own multi-sig or collaborative multi-sig businesses for mm. clients that they advise. And so I when I look at this, and again to kind of flesh out what it is, well, you would use their software and you would say to, you know, maybe a client that you have and say, Hey, um, okay, so I'm going to create a key and you're going to create a couple of keys with maybe tap signers or cold cards or, or any other host of hardware wallets that you like, whatever, whatever they, they prefer. And you'll be able to move money entirely without me. That's totally fine. Um, but if anything happens, then you can come to me um, and I'll be, I'll be the signer for you. And you can set all the policies of like, after what thresholds do you require more proof that it's actually them? All those kinds of things you can set up in here. And there's also a built-in encrypted chat. So you have direct communication with anybody that you're doing this type of thing with. I've got to believe here that this is making Unchained and Casa sweat a little bit. Because this kind of, in a way... It doesn't fully decentralize, but it, it it partially decentralizes the idea of of collaborative custody. It takes it from Nunchuck is the entity that holds all the keys and is a honeypot for the information um, of what those multi-six contain or Unchained or CASA or whatever it may be. And it splits it up to multiple advisors that would be the ones that are privy to that information only. And furthermore... The other thing that might be maybe making Unchained and Casa kind of going, holy crap, maybe we need to 
pivot or, or think about our model a little bit more is that Nunchuck also does this stuff um, without KYC because it's, it's not required for them to know your information in order to hold a key with you as long as you have login credentials of some sort. Like basically they do it via email, but they do have a way um, that they're looking at implementing where your private key is actually the only identification you need or your public key. Um, and so I'm just kind of looking at this from the perspective of what is this going to spur on in terms of how we, how we custody, how we secure, how we deal with on-chain Bitcoin entirely. And this isn't the only thing that's kind of popped up recently that I think is very interesting. Um, it was uh, Rob Hamilton with Anchor Watch. They just got a huge funding round. And I can't remember the name of the the uh, the product that there is basically in beta now or alpha right now. Um, but it's again, it's it's in and around multisig. But the the level to which you can customize the multisig setup is so so granular um, using Miniscript where you could say, I've got a vault and it requires X amount of keys, like M of N keys. You need two of three keys to, to unlock this vault. But if there's no transactions after X amount of blocks, you only require one key or, you know, whatever the threshold is. So you can have like these degrading multi-sigs, you can have all of these intricate oh, wow. things you can do. So like you can very much customize it so that if something goes awry with the keys that are governing the multi-sig, there's a fail safe, you know, X number of blocks down the road where, okay, you know, I misplaced two of the five keys. Well, now I'm only going to need you know, you know, one or two of them to unlock the money later. So th there's a lot of stuff happening in terms of multi-sig and on-chain security, both from the company perspective, but also from the like actual on-chain technical sp perspective too. And I, I think we haven't really seen the implications of that and, and what it means. And I don't think the world is even close to catching up to the idea that the technology here is infinitely safer than even what the the laws are requiring of companies to do in in kind of the legacy finance world like the 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 laws are so slow to catch up with this kind of stuff so yeah um anyways the, i i know that was kind of rambly and everything but i'm just i'm super interested in what's happening there and i guess i'm just going to kind of open it up there to get your general thoughts on where you think we're going in and around in and around custody in and around how individuals versus companies versus family member like where are we headed with with custody what what do you think so i i like to riff on that first actually because nunchuck was my second choice for things i'm bullish on for this episode um uh which is a, a big compliment and basically i i you know I, I put them in second place but basically um i have been trying uh nunchuck wallets uh for the past few weeks and i've actually been using it so much that i found bugs that i passed to hugo uh not non-critical bugs but just mm -hmm. like ux improvements that they could do and that they they already have implemented 
Um, so that's how deep into the nunchuck rabbit hole I have gone. Um, and I, I truly think that basically in order to help Bitcoin increasingly spread to the masses, it has to be easy to use, right? So mm -hmm. the percentage of people that use cars and that are mechanics is a very low percentage, mm -hmm. uh, right? So the majority of people that use cars only know like two or three things about the car. Like don't mm -hmm. run out of gas, uh, check your oil sometimes, you know, get it checked up once in a while. You can't be an expert on every aspect of the car. That's just unrealistic for most people, not every person, but most people. And for Bitcoin to hit the masses, there needs to be easy ways to give them self-sovereignty or at least varying degrees of self-sovereignty and privacy uh, without a lot of complexity. And th so things like degrading multisig or things like easy multisig mm -hmm. or things like the, the software wallet plus tap signer combination uh, where you have like a $30 hardware wallet. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there's there's certain security trade-offs compared to like a full-on cold card with a passphrase and things like that. But at least the tap signer is like 95% of the way there for most types of security attacks uh, for $30, which is important mm -hmm. for the global south. So I, I'm a huge fan of what Nunchuck is doing. Um, and also, I mean, totally separately from that, in my, my recent book, Broken Money, I referenced uh, the founder of Nunchuck, Hugo twice in the proof of work chapter uh because like like five years ago on medium he wrote really detailed essays on proof of work versus proof of stake which are still valid uh here in 2023 so mm -hmm. um just from the overall quality of the founder and the quality of the product i'm a big fan of the whole nunchuck ecosystem and the various interactions they have with say CoinKite or other companies so i, yeah. I think that whether it's Nunchuck or, you know, Cash App and BitKey and what, what they're coming out with. I also think Swan has a strong pipeline ahead. I think any company that is bringing like, you know, kind of complex security to the masses in a way that is like hard to mess up is really important. Like that, yeah. that, that that's what makes people actually use Bitcoin. And so we can like beat Shiba Inu in terms of like the number of people that use Bitcoin hardware versus trade Shiba Inu on Coinbase. Like that that ratio should be better. And I think that anything that makes that better is good. Yeah, 100%. And also in, in further praise of Hugo. Uh, so during, again, during the all the crazy stuff that happened in, at the beginning of 2022 with Canada, we were using a, a multi-sig with Nunchuck and they were nothing but supportive in helping us kind of like figure that out as we navigated it in a very kind of stressful environment. Um, but furthermore, the Canadian government actually reached out to Nunchuck and basically said, hand over yeah. all the information about people using their platform. And they wrote, and they were like, we don't have it. Yeah. <laughs> and they, not only that, they wrote back, they said, we don't have it. We can't know it. This is by design. But they also told the Canadian government effectively to go fuck themselves because they said, uh, they basically said like, um, we are, we are here to serve people and, uh, we, we can't know this information, blah, blah, blah. And when the Canadian go, when the Canadian dollar goes to zero, we will be here to serve you too. Um, <laughs> and, and so like, but this was like internally when they were speaking within the company of like, how are we going to, what kind of company are we going to be? Um, they, they had a discussion around like, are we going to. Are we going to do this? 
And um, they all internally, they, they knew that if they did this, there's a possibility they might not exist later. And, and they just said, listen, we think it's important. This, this fits with our ethos. If anybody doesn't um, agree with this stance or is worried about this stance, it, that's okay. You can, you can go, um, but this is what we're doing. And I, I think they did have some people go, um, but they, they forged forward with it. So anyways, if we haven't given enough praise to Hugo and Nunchuck, then, uh, then that's my extra little tip in there. But I, I'm going to open it up to uh, uh, Stephen and Anita here, if either of you wants to jump in. Yeah. yeah, if I if I may, because I want to, um, um, yeah, start where Lynn basically was also starting from the global south perspective, because I think it's so important to have an easy to use, reliable multi sig setup, which up until now we didn't have, because even I and I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin user since five years now or over five years, I have never set up a multi sig myself. Because I was told by even people who much more about it than me that they failed. Mm -hmm. And so I, I never did it and I never recommended it. But in my workshops, for instance, with human rights um, activists in Zambia, I uh, saw that two people who are the leaders of big NGOs, big African human rights NGOs, they were coming up to me and saying, okay, now I understand that. Up until now, Whenever we received funds from abroad, the government came, told us or said that we are a terrorist uh, organization and stole our funds. Mm -hmm. And now I understand this is not possible with Bitcoin. And also what we're doing there is showing them how it works, how to set up a self-custody wallet, how to securely store the seed. But then this one uh, lady said to me, you know, my organization is in five African countries and I would like to receive funds in Bitcoin, but then I have to share it with my other organizations because what we are doing now is we are sending cash in big suitcases into our countries because otherwise it's not possible to send money to other African countries. And that's why I'm so happy to hear this now about uh, Nunchuck and that there are also other people and companies working on that because I think it's really a critical step um, in also onboarding organizations um, into Bitcoin. And that, uh, yeah, uh, was missing up until now. And I'm also glad to hear that you uh, people um, know more about Nunchuck and also the people behind it, because for me, that's also always critical um, if I trust uh, a tool or not. Mm -hmm. And so I'm happy to hear that. And I will take a look more into Nunchuck. Definitely, definitely do it. And in particular, in that use case where you said five different countries, what they can do is they can set up actually just a, a um, an email associated uh, user. Um, and that's just simply used as a way to forge a connection with another person. There's a built in encrypted chat. And so you can add contacts. And once you have, say, one person in each country, you can enter in a, into a gr an encrypted group chat together. And then basically uh, add in your public key information and then create a multi-sig from afar all together at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then anytime you want to send a transaction, it's a group chat message that anybody can tap on and sign. 
Okay, so, and basically I could set it up for them or yeah. you could from anywhere in the world. Yeah, and they don't need hardware for it. It can be, because oh. it's multi-sig, right? So you can you can just yeah, have a right. on your phone and even if and somebody got picked up, like the person still has nothing. But I, on my side, I would have some hardware wallets, really, uh, right? Like to protect the seed. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, you could, but any person can put forward any key they want. So it could be a tap signer, which is a, a low cost option, or it could just be a hot wallet. And, and that key that's associated with it is part of a multi-sig. It's still quite secure from that perspective because they would have to obtain, you know, whatever the threshold of keys is to actually approve transactions. So yeah, it's definitely a hundred times more secure than what we have now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, to, to their point, and basically you build, it's almost like Legos. They, they, you can build seeds and then you can build wallets based on those seeds in like a multi-signature way, or you can build signa single signature ones. And, you know, the complexity of multi-sig is that every party has to, you know, make sure they have the full config file of all the XPUBs of all the different multi-sigs. That's one of the challenges of multi-sig. Um, but Nunchuck makes it fairly easily. I think they, they kind of sit right in the, on the edge of like cypherpunk and mainstream in the sense that they can be super anonymous. They're super cypherpunk, but they're also making it easy enough and cheap enough. Uh, and I think that's really valuable. So, you know, what, what, what Ben pointed out is you can have free wallets, like mobile wallets, which would be insecure in a signal signature setup, but are fairly secure as part of a multi-signature. And then you can have things like tap signers or, you know, more hardcore, hardcore, like, you know, like full on like hardware wallets where you get the, your own screen to validate the transaction. But the combination of those things results in a fully like, you know, kind of low cost, multi-signature, easy to set up private situation. And I, yeah, and I assume that everyone in that multi-seek has to have a nunchuck wallet on their phone or on their desktop, right? So I can't use another wallet. Yeah, I mean, technically speaking, you know, the 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 multi-seek uh, wallet file could be exported and then put into something. Yeah. Um, but you would then have to be aware of proposed transactions, and so nunchuck just kind of packages that in a nice little app. Um, but it is. Like I have nunchuck multi-sigs that I've exported and put in Sparrow Wallet or other interfaces. So it is possible. And that was part of my like deep testing when I broke stuff. I was like, okay, how can I, you know, I was like creating a wallet, a seed, and then like deleting it and like see if I can recreate <laughs> it and like porting it over to like Blockstream Green and things like that. So basically with nunchuck details, you can port it over to other things, just as any good hard, like Bitcoin hardware should do. It should be open and and not relying on any one company so big uh nunchuck lets you set something up well like very simply but then you know should nunchuck fail or should otherwise you know it be an issue there there's ways to recover that in a more decentralized way yeah and vince vincent in the chat says is it boomer proof i would say like in the uh <laughs> i'm not detracting from boomers here by the way i would say in the in the grand scheme of things um especially if you go an easy route like using tap signers it becomes very boomer proof it's 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 a pretty easy flow um especially like an assisted multi-sig thing because then you've got you know like all of the assistance through it so yeah i, I would give it the boomer proof stamp of approval um definitely 
I, I, I think so anyways. It's, it's, it's some of the most boomer proof stuff that I've seen thus far. And again, I'm not detracting from boomer. I've got to say, I've been super impressed with uh, some of the boomers that have reached out to me and done one-on-ones. Damn. Some of them are like, are, are like setting up their cold cards, using yeah. multi-sig, running nodes, learning about coin like it's wild how much people have leveled up in the past few years and some of these people are like yeah i started a year ago and they're doing all these things i never imagine it but i work with these people every day uh we have like you know the average demographic for private is obviously a bit older than the average bitcoiner i'm always extremely impressed by you know, just the technical competency and just like what these people have done. And I mean, I, I know people in their 60s and 70s that are running a business that have the business with their own cold storage that they're, you know, taking excess cash flows and putting it into custody. They manage themselves like it's it's impressive. It's really very cool. Um, and just real quick on uh, what you shared, I think I think what most jumps out for me about nunchuck and and what you just proposed is like two use cases um one is just for the average person who is orange pilling people so for the average bitcoiner you're talking to friends you're talking to family you're out in your community being able to say hey i can manage a key for you to make this process easier in a very grassroots community trust network way i think that's awesome and i think that's something that will make it less daunting for new people who are unfamiliar with this, who the idea of, you know, putting all this, securing all their wealth themselves or some of their wealth themselves is daunting. And like the average person gets orange pilled from one other person. There is an individual in their life who introduces Bitcoin to them. And that is their first point of contact. And if that person can help them do an assisted multi-sig, I think that's that's very cool. It might not be a fit for everybody, but it's very cool. Yeah. Uh, and then the second use case that comes to mind is actually financial advisors and people who function as like RIAs or financial advisors. Uh, there's obviously some regulation there that I'm not an expert on and without getting into those questions. But I feel like, you know, in the future for so many people work with a financial advisor and being able to have that person secure a key for you or two keys or something, I think will make a certain demographic a lot more comfortable with the process of owning Bitcoin. And that's important because it's spot Bitcoin. And what is the alternative? If they can't do this, what will they do? They'll either buy an ETF or they won't buy it at all. So I've, I, I see like, some sort of pipeline here where financial advisors hold keys in a multi-sig for private individuals as maybe an important step in like not having like paper bitcoinization and just like endless etf ownership yeah yeah 100 percent. awesome well okay so guys i i don't want to <laughs> we, we got kind of way down a rabbit hole on that one uh but i, I want to I'm, yeah, it, it was it was a good chat. I, and I'm sure that uh, Hugo will be excited when he wakes up and sees this. So um, nonetheless, I'm going to put a little bow on that one. We'll put it off to the side. We're going to do a rotation again. Everybody in the chat. Um, uh, thank you for being here. Yellow seems to think that Lynn uh, is in need of a Red Bull. So pass the one uh, I've got. Well, luckily, yellow brought one for you, so um, <laughs> <laughs> you can you can grab it. Uh, no, he's he's not letting go of it. So uh, 
nonetheless, uh, we're going to do a rotation here. Um, I'm going to toss it to Anita first, and I'll cue you up with the question, why are you bullish? I'm bullish because I visited or attended the Global Bitcoin Summit last week or two weeks ago in Nashville, which was organized by the Human Rights Foundation, which is doing a phenomenal job in bringing Bitcoin education and also donations to developers with their grants. And I think a lot of the work yeah, I have been doing myself because I'm also a grantee and, and many other projects in that region uh, would not be where they are if it wasn't for the Human Rights Foundation. And this event was really special and made me personally also bullish because, you know, traveling these countries and doing all that work that can be very lonely sometimes. <laughs> and it was great to see other 99 or 100 um, Bitcoin educators and communities from, I think, 23 countries. 50, 56. 56. Oh, Ben. Yes, Ben was also there. <laughs> and um, we were able to present our projects, to learn from each other. And what I have seen is an incredible progress in um, these projects and communities in their educational work. Also, I was very impressed with a few or actually all the projects, um, but from the, the demos and the the, the um, talks we had, um, especially things like Lake Guatemala, or of course, Bitcoin Ikasi, which I want to visit again uh, at the end of the year, um, and many more. Also, a lot of online educational uh, projects, Mi Prima Bitcoin, uh, then the a project from Dulce, um, how is it called? Um, she's uh, doing uh, developer education in Spanish. Yes. Um, so uh, it's really impressive. I mean, in the in the big, 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 big uh, uh, few, we are still only a few people. But uh, imagine these hundred people and their uh, communities in their countries. If each of us is only influencing like a hundred people and those are influencing the next hundred, I mean, this is like a snowball. It will only grow um, because I always say if, if one person uh, experiences how life-changing Bitcoin can be for them, they will tell it and share the story to their friends and their family. And that's basically unstoppable. That's the, the other unstoppable thing about Bitcoin. Not only its technology is unstoppable, it's also, I think, the, the positive sides it can bring. Um, and so that was really a very bullish moment for me and um, a great place to be to learn from my peers. Yeah. I, I, I like what you're saying there um, in and around the, uh, the I, I guess, the, the effects of having um, everybody, again, ex basically extrapolating out how quickly things, how quickly this education can spread around. Um, because, uh, I mean, we've already been talking about it uh, and, and I made reference to people that I, I deal with that you know, in a very short period of time, they've learned so much. And the reason I say that is because it took me a long time to figure out what the hell I was doing. And, I, and I'm thinking like, man, you, you learned all of that so much faster than I did. And how, like, how is that possible? But I think it's because of the efforts of the people that came before 
in educating newcomers were available and somebody was rather than starting from scratch, able to look at something and say, okay, I get it now. And now I can go out and teach more people and iterate upon the resources that I had to make them better. Like, you know, I never would have imagined back in 2015, having bookshelves full full of Bitcoin related content. I never would have imagined the sheer number of of books, articles, podcasts. I can remember there being like a podcast or two that would happen once a week and I'd just be dying waiting to get that little tiny piece of Bitcoin content once or twice a week. And now it's like every single day, it's like, oh, 24 seven spaces. And, and just, I could, I could put podcasts on and press play and I would run out of life before I ran out of podcasts. Um, Mm. (laughs) It's just so much content, but it, 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 it compounds and it, it extrapolates out. And I think that's why we're seeing people um, able to level up so quickly. And I think it's going to get faster. Yeah, I mean, what's missing is definitely languages, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we have loads of information in English, but much less in all the other languages. I mean, Spanish, I think, is also very um, good, a lot of content there. But other than that, yeah. Yeah, yeah 100%. Uh, but I'm bullish nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Steve, what are your thoughts here? Like, how, how, how are we doing? <laughs> yeah, a couple things came to mind. Just real quick on what you said. I mean, I, I think about this all the time of like, it, it's insane how far we've come since like 2017. You know, I mean, it's just like, it's a different universe. It's a different world. And like, you know, we, we all, you know, you live life from the first person perspective, day by day, moment by moment. Um and so like the, the the pace of change, I think, can feel maybe be obscured a little bit when you're just seeing it. Well, did anything happen yesterday? Did anything happen today, 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 today? But you look back over these swaths of time and it's 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 mind boggling to me the difference between now and five, six years ago on so many levels. So just a quick comment on what you said with that. I think about that all the time. And then um, on Anita's point, it's. I mean, I think it's just so crucial that this education and resources and uh, also startups that are targeting just (laughs) the non-English speaking rest of the world, just, you know, outside of U.S. and Europe, um, Canada. um, It's so critical because, you know, actually, like we talk about institutional adoption a lot in the community, like that gets passed around. And, you know, I, actually, it's kind of one of my fears, to be honest. I know we're on why are we bullish, so I'll keep this short. But one of my fears is actually that, like, institutional adoption happens too quickly in the U.S. And U.S. financial, like, ownership of Bitcoin becomes disproportionate, like, mm-hmm. by a huge margin relative to the rest of the world. Like, if Fidelity and BlackRock and Vanguard and, you know, these sort of firms... uh you know, wake up suddenly one day and decide to start building into Bitcoin positions really quickly. Like it, it I mean, that, that really moves the needle a lot. And so I just think, you know, it is important that we are, you know, looking at the rest of the world and realizing like they're, you know, just empowering them with the tools and the education so that 
everybody can get some Bitcoin before the price goes 20, 30, 40, 50 X. Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems like it matters to me. It's not that, you know, I think Bitcoin benefits the rest of the world, regardless of like percentage of ownership, just via the system that it is. Yeah. And it's not diminishing that. But I, I mean, it still would be obviously a, a bit nicer if, you know, the, you know, aggregate global population could own some sats. Yeah, 100%. I'll, I'll toss it over to Lynn as well to get her thoughts. Um, so generally speaking, like, you know, that whole path of like the human rights angle or global empowerment, I think is a really important thing to focus on. And I, I've, you know, in Broken Money, I put Alex Lassine as like one of the most common people I reference like over and over again, because the work is so valuable. And, you know, the, the idea of spreading that to not just like, you know, global developed markets, but global developing markets, I think is super important. And the interesting thing is we see it kind of like spread around. So for example, it's very popular in the US, it's popular in China, but it, it's very disparate from market to market. So for example, it's very popular in Argentina, it's very popular in Nigeria, but for example, it's not not popular at all in Egypt, right? And there's many other countries where it's not popular at all at, whether for language reasons or cultural reasons, it's just not something that's spread there so far. And so from country to country to country, there's various opportunities to spread that idea. And in the Western sphere, I've generally found that, you know, obviously libertarian or cypherpunk or more right-leaning people have generally embraced Bitcoin a little bit quicker than people more on the left side of the political spectrum in the Western uh, kind of political sphere, whether US or Europe. But one of the things that reaches them very quickly is when you bring up like the Alex Gladstein angle or the human rights angle of people in various authoritarian countries, including, for example, women in Afghanistan back in 2013, or, you know, people struggling for human rights in Nigeria in recent years, or uh, Vladimir Putin's opposition in Russia in recent years. For example, when these groups are finding themselves cut off financially and they're using Bitcoin as a tool to attract capital and to spend capital and to build a custody of their own capital, that actually speaks to people on the Western left in a way that other um, descriptions of Bitcoin haven't necessarily reached yet. Um, and I think that's still low-hanging fruit to keep going after hard um, mm -hmm. because it's something that it, as it becomes more widespread and understood – uh, that's dramatically powerful um, in a bipartisan sense. Uh, basically, it's one of those things that if you're in a free country, it's like obvious when you know it. And if you're in an authoritarian country, uh, you want it unless you're the one running the authoritarian country, right? Yeah. So it's like any, anytime any person that's in favor of capital moving from authoritarian countries to democracy, like, uh, you know, democracies or other kind of free market economies should support that kind of narrative. And mm -hmm. I think that's really easy to market. Yeah. I, I've, I've got a follow up question then on that line of thinking, Lynn. So you, you mentioned early on about, um, you know, a lot of kind of right leaning individuals tended to gravitate towards Bitcoin first. Do you think that's merely a symptom of of just kind of the times that we're in, um, in that those that 
at least in a Western sense, like I'm talking, you know, America, Canada, you know, Europe, Western Europe. Um, do you think that's more of a symptom of the, 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 uh, political leanings or the, 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 the people that kind of have the upper hand, um, things have been, a, you know, more progressive in the past number of years. And so those that are more likely to experience, um, deplatforming happen to be on the right at this period in time. And so then there's this, uh, you know, uh, recognition of, oh, hey, censorship resistant money could be useful in this instance. And would that be inverse if Bitcoin had come about in a different time, say the civil rights movement? I think it's possible that in the, you know, kind of the Western world within the lifetime of Bitcoin, those that are more on the conservative spectrum have been able to appreciate that aspect of Bitcoin a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you were in the authoritarian parts of the world, things that would generally appeal to the Western left, things like LGBT rights yeah. or things like freedom of speech, like just utterly basic things like being able to survive as who you are. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's the type of demographic that the Human Rights Foundation goes after, for example, in those countries. Yeah. Or, or just being a, a woman in a male-dominated um, environment. Um, I, I think that when marketing Bitcoin, if you can sell the idea that you'd have to, you'd have to imagine like your political enemies have control of your country, do you want money to be decentralized or do you want it to be fully centralized? Yeah. And, and that, you know, I think that's a strong selling point. Yeah. I, th I think I, like what you just said, kind of, I guess, points to the answer is um, who in whatever region you're in, whoever the disenfranchised person is, is going to recognize that a global censorship resistant money is valuable. And it's all it takes is that that political pendulum to swing from one side or the other for each side of the political spectrum to understand that. Bitcoin can be also beneficial for them. I think I'm, it's also because like one of my views is actually that like these designations on, of right and left are not true across time. Like they yeah. basically don't exist across mm -hmm. time. And mm -hmm. so like the like specifically the ideological contents. So like whatever the like professed values of either camp are today, they surely weren't 60 years ago and they surely weren't 60 and they might have like swapped back and forth multiple times across that time horizon. And so I think it's, yeah, it's kind of to your point, it's really just more like who's in power and who's disenfranchised. Like the disenfranchised is always going to kind of, you know, maybe intuit the appeal mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, of a politically resistant money. Yeah. first. Yeah. I, if I may add something from my European uh, perspective and my personal experiences with friends and whatever, uh, people who tend to be progressive left in our yeah, uh, region, they dislike money in a way. So it's okay to have enough, uh, but uh, it's a little bit like um, as soon as you have loads of money, you've done something wrong. Yeah. So maybe from that perspective, also people are not so much interested in Bitcoin. And it's also the, the storytelling and the 
um, appearance of that Bitcoin in northern countries is a store of value. It's a tool for speculation. It's an investment. Yeah. And most people, I'm the same, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in investing. I'm interested in saving and using money as a tool. And mm -hmm. I think that's the, the, these are the thoughts where, where many people who are left-leaning are coming from, and therefore they are not interested in Bitcoin. And I can... Um, um, of course, it's, I, I also had these stories where people said to me, a young woman once said to me, you're the first one who is uh, telling me Bitcoin has another use case than speculation, this human rights aspect. I didn't even know about that. And um, my friends, uh, my boy boyfriend and the other guys, they are totally into trading Bitcoin and crypto. And I'm really put off by that. I find it's disgusting. Uh, but now that I've heard that from you, I have a different uh, perspective. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, the left is not so into Bitcoin yet. Yeah, I, it's yeah, it's very interesting. And uh, again, I think um, I think I think the the Human Rights Foundation work in particular, you're right, it, it speaks to that segment of the, the population. Um, and it's a very easy sell when you're you're coming at it from that angle. Basically, you, you kind of need to know who you're speaking with in order to yeah. pique their interest. Um, and and yeah, it's it's funny that you say, um, you know, money is is, you know, there's a perspective that money is bad or having a lot of money is bad. And I think that's just inherent in how how a lot of very rich people obtain money in our current system, because it's not through creating value for others in a lot of cases. It's from extracting value from others. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. We'll, we'll leave it there, I guess. Um, I'm really glad that you brought up uh, Human Rights Foundation and, and that event. It was so wonderful. And the people there were top quality. Uh, it was a wonderful few days. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, um, it was yesterday or the day before uh, that um, that uh, CK who just joined the Human Rights Foundation. So claps for him uh, on on his new position. Uh, but they announced um, the newest round of of grants, and I was very very humbled to have been a part of that round of grants. So oh, the HRF, HRF, yeah. So I was very um, thankful for that. So I'm you know I'm gonna be I, I gotta I, I I'm obliged to make sure it goes to good use, and so I'm gonna. Uh, I got some work to do, I suppose. So, yeah. Awesome. Nonetheless, uh, thank you. I saw somebody mentioned it in the chat. So, um, yeah. Anyways, that that'll be uh, that'll be up next, I suppose. But uh, with that, uh, I think we're going to do another rotation. Um, Anita, thank you for that topic. Uh, and uh, I'm going to toss it over to Steve next. And again, I'm going to cue you up with the question: Why are you bullish? So I'm actually. I'm, I'm really bullish because of Bitcoiners and the longer I'm in this space, the more one of the things that, that strikes me as the most surprising and impactful is this network of people that Bitcoin has attracted around itself. Just the sheer, it's not just that like, there's a lot of very smart people working on Bitcoin, although that's true. There are a lot of very intelligent people, but the world is full of 
There's many intelligent people in the world, but not all intelligent people can really think for themselves. Not all intelligent people can truly question, um, you know, the data set they've been fed, right? It's almost, uh, I don't know if I have any Dune fans in the audience, but the concept of a mentat in Dune is like a human calculator. But if you feed them the wrong data, they come out with the wrong conclusions. And I, I think a lot of intelligent people in the world are somewhat like that. And so it's intelligence, but there's another trait, which is kind of the ability to stand in your own two shoes. And you're going to think for yourself. Maybe you come to the right conclusion. Maybe you come to the wrong conclusion. But I see that like Bitcoin has been so successful in creating this just tremendous network of people around it. And I was thinking like maybe a way to illustrate this is if I had to give like a young person starting out in their career a piece of advice that isn't just true today, but will be true across all time, which will always be true. Now, that's a high bar. But if I was going to attempt to do it, I would say that you should look for an idea, a movement, a technology or a group which just attracts brilliant creative people, no matter what that idea, movement, group or technology is. And even if that whether that thing succeeds or fails, um, that that community network is going to be infinitely valuable. And um, and so I look at this like network of people that has congregated around Bitcoin, that Bitcoin's been this shelling point for these certain sorts of thinkers. And I've I've increasingly found that like embedded in Bitcoin in the Bitcoin community is almost a, is, is there's this embedded like almost cultural revolution. There's almost like a cultural element to it. And that Bitcoiners as a group, you know, we, you've all heard the phrase fix the money, fix the world. Well, embedded within that is the kind of what is desired is the fixing of the world. The money is a tool to fix the world. What people want is not the money in of itself. It's social and cultural change. It is uh, actually a, a revitalization of culture. And so I see this thread running through the Bitcoin community of almost cultural critique. And it, it doesn't just show up in this kind of economic or social terms, but I've found that Bitcoiners by and large are interested in all sorts of things. I've always considered myself a generalist and I really respect and value generalists. In a, and I think we live in an increasingly hyper-specialized world. And um, I've, I've taken such tremendous joy and gratitude interacting with Bitcoiners across like such a diverse array of interests. It's been phenomenal. And I just couldn't be more bullish on a group of people. Like it's when I ask myself, what is the thing I'm most grateful for? Like, what am I most grateful for from my time in Bitcoin? The answer is the people, hands down. And so I'm bullish on Bitcoiners. I love that. Um, it's, it's, it's always good to be bullish on Bitcoiners. I, th I think, I, I like what you said about, um, yeah, there, there's kind of this, this budding culture in and around Bitcoin Um going into other areas. Cause I mean, I, I think a lot of Bitcoiners are very passionate, thoughtful people and some, you know, obviously all Bitcoiners had some level of expertise in something else before they came to Bitcoin. Yeah. So if, if the, the, the passion and, and the, the, uh, I, I guess attention to 
detail and creating value. And, and, and a lot of the key tenants of Bitcoin um, also prior drove that person's life. And, and then those, those values brought them to Bitcoin. Then there can also be a lot of things to learn from their previous areas of expertise. And so you get a lot of interesting people. I'm, I'm actually particularly um, interested in, in the realm of, of, art like Bitcoin art. I think there's a lot of interesting things that are beginning to pop up there. Um, and also I, I really like the, uh, Bitcoin commentary around, um, the implications of fiat society and architecture. And I, I there's a lot of that as I, I was traveling Europe, uh, this past summer and you, you know, you compare some of the the new bits of architecture versus, um, you know, some of these magnificent historical buildings. And, you know, you're comparing a time where people would sometimes begin, uh, begin projects that they knew they would never see to completion in their lifetimes, but were meant for generations in the future. And now we're building, we're, we're building uh, easily dismantled, uh, pieces of architecture by borrowing money from future generations instead. So we, we're getting like this exact inverse um, in a lot of societies. So yeah, it's it's very interesting. And it's just, you bring up this, this idea that comes to the surface from that is like, it's a question of like, what values does our society hold? Like what, what values are close to our hearts? Mm -hmm. And what do we, and how do we embody those values? And it's like, those questions, like I see Bitcoiners asking those questions. And it's not to say that like everyone agrees. In fact, people don't agree. You query the Bitcoin community, you'll find people that heavily disagree on what sort of values are uh, desirable in, in a society. But that's good because it's really the act of inquiry, which is the vitalizing thing. It's really the act of inquiry, which I feel like has the potential to restore to restore culture to restore trajectories and i think just when i look at a group of people that's just really asking these questions that's really just looking at the world today and uh while people may disagree on what the problems are or where the problems came from um something clearly isn't working something clearly is not it's not not functioning appropriately and so that that process of inquiry into like not just like what are the systems, what are the infrastructure, how should the money change, but what what values do we need to hold, which we do not currently hold or do not currently embody? Because, you know, from the perspective of one individual, the statement fix the money, fix the world might appear to be true. It might appear to be that, you know, you or I could just kind of sit here, the monetary system change, and almost if by magic, the, the culture and the social norms and everything changes. Yeah. Um, but that would, that's still, but if everybody does that, if everybody just sits idly by, I don't think that does happen because you still need someone somewhere, some group that is actually asking those questions that is actually engaging with a, with a dream of like, what, what, what does society look like? What, what value should we hold? How should we navigate this? Uh, and so I just see that, that process of inquiry is just. Um, it's important. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to toss it over to, uh, Anita and Lynn here. I just, because we kind of got, uh, on, on the topic of, of, 
kind of low time preference in everything that people create. And I, I mentioned artists. I'm just, I wanted to take a second to give a shout out to three of my favorite Bitcoin artists. Uh, one being Fractal Encrypt. Uh, amazing stuff. He's the one who did the like amazing dial that that sailor bought that was all done in wood, but he, he's got amazing work. Obviously, crypto graffiti always does awesome, awesome stuff. Uh, and I love the dude and he's he's so nice. Um, and then Madex is doing some really unique stuff. So those, those are my three Bitcoin art shills that I wanted to throw in there. But um, uh, well, I'll toss it over to Lynn first and then to Anita real um, quick. Yeah, yeah. Let me just shout out a uh, yellow drop something in the chat um, saying, Stephen, Bitcoin companies also have a responsibility around what kind of content, thus enrichment of that Bitcoin culture uh, are pushing to the space. For example, I had enough of everything being macro. Not everyone can do macro. Let the experts, Lynn, Booth, etc. Bitcoin is so much more. Just something to think about. Yellow, I couldn't agree with you more. And like I recently, Ben uh, referenced this at the beginning of the show. I recently started a walking podcast. It's not just a walking podcast. And this isn't a shill. It's it's actually the, the, the spirit of the podcast is getting to know well-known Bitcoiners outside of Bitcoin. What else are you interested in? Who else are you? And it's because I had the same experience that like I could not bring myself to do another macro podcast. There are people that could do it far better than me, like Lynn and others. And I just think the community does deserve it, it's richer. It's broader than that. So I just wanted to shout that out. Totally agree with you. Love it. Awesome. I'm glad I'm glad you you I didn't see it go by because I was busy pulling up all the artists. So um, anyways, I'm going to toss it over to Lynn uh, to, to get your thoughts on everything being discussed. So I'll jump in and agree. Basically, it's funny because I'm a big fan of like art deco architecture. Yeah. But the funny thing is like some of those really hardcore, hardcore like architecture people even think that's like a shit coin. Like you have to go pre World War One to get the true like good architecture. Uh, but I think it's funny because it kind of comes in spectrums. I would like to see better architecture. Um, and I do think a lot of this is tied to the time preference of money and the availability of like, you know, constantly shorting fiat credit. And in my book, Broken Money, one of the things I, I cover is how different monetary systems inherently incentivize different types of behaviors. And if you're in an environment where the unit of account is constantly debasing, you're enticed to short that and then, you know, build whatever, base whatever you can, short, short the currency, build anything that's slightly more scarce than the currency, which is not a high bar. And I think that has attracting efforts on, on the overall society. Um, and as an example, I mean, I, I've unfortunately known people who, if you take them and you put them in a developed country and they're in like a nice area or even in a, in a nice area in a developing country, they're not going to litter, right? They're not going to throw trash out. But if you put the same, literally the same person, and I've seen this happen in a shitty area or in just like a, you know, what is what used to be a high end area in a developing country, but has for whatever reason encountered various just like you know, political issues and geopolitical issues and money issues, it's just not as good as it used to be. People will throw trash out on the street. Um, and it, it's kind of that broken window philosophy, but it's, it, you know, the fact that I, I live in different countries for a very part of the year lets me see things in kind of different perspectives. And that's like a really real phenomenon that people do. 
that if you respect the area that you live in, if you feel culturally associated with it, and if you feel that your leaders are trying hard to build in a, like a system that supports you, and if you feel like you're in tune with the, with your neighbors, like you're you're all in this together, and it's a beautiful place, you want to support it. Whereas if you feel like it's it's corrupt, it's it's yeah. you know you don't you don't resonate with your neighbors, it's all going to hell, it's degrading in various ways. You're like I'll just throw the McDonald's package on the street because it's all trash. There's really trash there anyway. So like what what am I adding to it, right? And so that's like it's like order and virtue have like a cycle that creates more mm-hmm. virtue and order whereas mm-hmm. chaos and bad things have a cycle that creates more chaos and bad things and it can be very hard but possible but very hard to shift that back towards the good things and it's mm-hmm. a, it's unfortunately very momentum based yeah i love that it's uh i i think that's spot on and it's like when people can feel enfranchised and proud and connected and uh part of their their culture their civilization their society that just has like it's like a fly it's a flywheel effect like you said it just it is a virtuous spiral where you get better communities you get people that feel differently about life philosophies change systems change and uh that that kind of cultural layer um which i agree like money implicates heavily in it's just so so near to us. It's so near to our direct experience. And you know, I I wouldn't mind you tagging in here as well, uh, hearing your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I agree with the general um, thing to say that time preference, of course, changes how you build stuff. Uh, but this um, Lynn also mentioned it. Uh, this uh, favorism of architecture that's what that that was built pre World War One. Um, we should not forget this was at the time when we still had a kingdom uh, and uh, uh, basically, yeah, an empire in Austria, for instance, or all over Europe. So uh, the price for these buildings were lives, the lives of people, the lives, lives of the common people who were not uh, in some sort of um, king, uh, like a princess family or whatever. Uh, you know, you get what I want to say. <laughs> um, so um, I'm a little bit uh, critical about these comparisons. And then I also want to drop a name of a Bitcoin artist I recently found. Uh, It's uh, Coda List. And uh, this guy is making basically nice art for your home. (laughs) Let's say it like that with a focus on cypherpunk, uh, cypherpunkism and Bitcoin and um, lightning also. What's um, what's the name? Coda List. That's K-O-D-A and list.com. Um, yeah, and then also uh, with our shared values. Um, I think, yes, we share a lot of values around Bitcoin, around uncensorable money, around uh, 21 million and things like that. But other than that, uh, we are very diverse, I think. Um, I do not share many of the views other Bitcoiners might share, like, uh, to, for instance, you need to be a carnivore to be a real Bitcoiner or um the the great thing about bitcoin is bitcoin builds families to last and the natural family is of course uh, a man and a woman um and uh children with rainbow flags that's the doomsday 
scenario where we're going into in a fiat world. So I highly disagree with this um, um, pictures of, of Bitcoin or, or uh, the fiat world. Um, but I also agree that it's fantastic um, what Bitcoiners um, have been doing in the recent years, because, I mean, we know uh, there is no marketing department. There is no unified voice behind us, um, but we all spread the same message in a way um, that um, money can be a tool um, for freedom. And that's why I'm so happy that we are so many already. And for me personally, I now have friends worldwide and which makes it great to be a digital nomad because I can visit a lot of communities and always feel safe because I have Bitcoiners there who I can uh, who I can rely upon. And that's great, too. Bitcoin is one of the unique communities where you can you can shuffle into any any city on the planet. And and as long as you can get a message out there. Hey, I'm curious where the Bitcoiners are at. You're going to have somebody that you'll be able to relate to and very quickly become friends with and have great discussions with um, in a short period of time. You're, you always have somebody to sit down and talk with, no matter where you are, uh, anywhere on the globe, um, which is, I, I think that's a pretty unique thing uh, to be able to say, to to walk in and, and say, hey, <laughs> where are the bitcoiners and, you, and you've got somebody to hang out with any any time um <laughs> so no, I, don't, I wanted to like quickly add to what anita said basically like if you don't feel like you fit in with bitcoin twitter like you're not alone like mm -hmm. that's that's the like the tip of the iceberg above the water and like there's this big broader diversified yeah. group of people below the surface there's people in china that are just not even on twitter there's mm -hmm. people in other countries that are not even on twitter there's you know if you look at the developers they're probably more likely to be vegan than carnivore mm -hmm. uh you know it's, 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 it's funny i was talking to elizabeth sark like years ago and she's like everybody in bitcoin has an extreme diet it just all differs like there's like some of them are carnivore some of them are vegan everything in between everyone has a particular thing but it's like you know it's like black and white right yeah. so it's it's a much broader space than what you see in just the Western podcast circuit, Bitcoin Twitter experience. And I think that's important to realize that if you like Bitcoin, if you like transparent money, if you like self-custodial money, if you like censorship resistance, and you're not like a carnivore, you know, like male, female, family, like, you know, proponent, like there's still a space for you in the whole ecosystem because that's that's one voice among many different voices. And the whole point of Bitcoin is that it's open source money and that it's permissionless to use and that it empowers anybody in any part of the world that wants to use it. Yeah. yeah. And that was actually that was actually my point with um like, I, I don't think people agree on the cultural conclusions. There's not consensus of any kind. I think actually people disagree heavily, but it's that it's it's the inquiry. Like even those two people, the, the carnivore and the vegan, well, they've each got their own idea about kind of a, a radical revision of the status quo. And, you know, time will tell you know, what those outcomes look like, but it's, it's, it's the process of inquiry. It's the process of asking questions of being willing to experiment, being willing to go back to the drawing board of diet and lifestyle and family and whatever it is. Like I, I find that very alive. I find that very alive. Yeah. I, I will say I, when I have a steak, I often also have a salad. 
And <laughs> I was also very excited about the new NSYNC song today. So Bitcoin's, there's all flavors of us out there. <laughs> so we'll leave that there. Um, awesome. Okay. I think we're, we're ready for our final rotation. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to toss it right back to Lynn here. And again, Lynn, I'm going to cue you up with the question. Why are you bullish? Take it away. So before I get to that, I'll say I like both stake and LGBT rights. So I, I'm all over the place in terms of the Bitcoin cultural ecosystem. I like all the things. I like all the different communities. Yeah. Um, and as I mentioned in the beginning of the show, Nunchuck was my second choice. But I think I have to really zero, like uh, double click my first choice, which is the importance of the unit of account that we take as money. So I, I just spent six weeks in Egypt. I go to Egypt every single year. Um, you know, my husband's originally from Egypt. Um, and so as a family, we spend part of the year in the United States, part of the year in Egypt every year. Um, and, you know, the, the funny thing is that my family's small, his family is very big. So our, our friend center and our family center is actually centered in Egypt, even as our economic center is centered in the United States. Um, and so Egypt is very important to us. And, that gives me some of a perspective because in the developed world, we have, say, on average, 7% broad money supply growth that obviously was accelerated during COVID. But on average, multi-decade average, 7% uh, annual broad money supply growth and the various implications that come with that. Whereas when you go to the developed world, you have much higher average rates of broad money supply growth. So, if, for example, in, in, in the Fiat Standard book, they cited 14% weighted average broad money supply growth among developed and developing countries, which means developing countries on average are going to be on the higher end of that. So generally double digits in Egypt in recent years over the past decades, it's been about 20% per year. So imagine that your unit of account is increasing in supply by 20% per year, almost every single year. And you're in the position of a wage earner or a small business a person trying to establish pricing for your various, various products. That's obviously a very hard environment to operate in. So I think that the majority of Bitcoin narratives or inflation narratives are based around the idea that your savings are being devalued. So as, as, as the supply increases, your liquid savings are devalued. But I think in many ways, a, a equal or bigger problem is that the contracts and the wages of people are constantly being devalued. So when Egypt, for example, back in 2016 and again in 2022 at the behest of the IMF, which Alex Gladstein goes into greatly in his work, when they forced Egypt to devalue their currency relative to the dollar by you know, half, um, any Egyptian that does not get a 100% raise in that environment is now earning fewer dollar equivalents on an ongoing basis indefinitely. Uh, compared to what they used to earn. And so not only were their liquid savings devalued, so it's not like you can just say, okay, you can put your money in real estate or, or Egyptian equities, which are not that great, or if you find a way to put your, your value into American equities and hold your value, the fact that your ongoing income is still devalued is really powerful. And if you survey people and say, hey, are you getting a 20% raise every year? Are you getting a, did you get a 100% raise, the fact that you were devalued by 50%? The answer is, you know, 99% going to be no. And to some extent, the same thing happens in developed countries, just at a less extreme scale. 
And so, for example, if CPI averages 2.5 or 3% per year over the long run, you know, the realistic basket of things you want to buy that are not like fully, you know, degraded by technology and things like that. So, for example, housing, healthcare, nutritious, like dense food, things like that is probably increasing at 4 or 5% per year. If you're not getting that wage increase plus whatever your realistic seniority, higher productivity bonus is, you're being diluted constantly. So the 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 anchoring bias or the 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 burden of proof is always against the person trying to keep up with inflation rather than the status quo, which is the employer or the, those that have the longer term contract. Um, and I think that's that's a greatly underestimated thing globally is is when the when the unit of account is constantly working against you and of course this only works in the current technology mix of that there's 160 different fiat currencies more or less it, the number changes every year because some of them fail but basically yeah, and you have you know 10 or 20 currencies that are relatively serious in terms of the fact that they degrade slowly over time and they have some to give global acceptance and then you have over 100 you know fiat currencies that are either pegged to the dollar and have no foreign acceptance and pegs can break or they're totally free floating and they're constantly inflating at a faster rate. And the the most damning thing is that if you look at the past 50 years under this current monetary system, the number of countries that have, have gone from developing to developed, you can count on like one hand, right? So uh, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, maybe a couple others, mostly in Asia, those are the only countries that have gone from literally developing to developed. There's no countries in Latin America that went from developing to developed. In, in fact, there's some that arguably went from developed to developing. Um, the same thing is true for Africa. We have none that went from developing to developed. And every, almost every single developed country today developed back under a hard money standard, back under when gold was money. Um, people were able to save money reliably and then deploy that capital. And in this current 50-year environment where developing countries are reliant on the dollar, the United States can harden the currency whenever they want to. They can soften the currency whenever they want to. And your currency, it's, it's almost like a vicious cycle because if you can issue debt in your own currency, your currency is inherently more stable. If you can't issue debt in your own currency and you have to take out foreign yeah. debt, your currency is less stable. And yeah. so fewer lenders want to lend in your currency. It's like a vicious cycle. There's almost, other than very rare exceptions, it's hard to break out of that system. And that's the world we live in. And that's the global situation. And I find that both unjust um, but I think that the more people realize the injustice of that situation and that realize it's not just the devaluation of your savings that matters, it's also the devaluation of your unit of account that matters. Um, I think all of that points to the importance of Bitcoin and the things that Bitcoin can fix over the, over the very long run. I think that the unfortunate thing is that in the intermediate term, the best that Bitcoin can fix is your own personal savings. Uh, you can't expect the unit of account is going to be fixed by Bitcoin. Uh, but in the long arc of time, if you picture a Bitcoinized world, the fact that, you know, you get benefits from going on Bitcoin now, but that you get greater benefits should the entire world become Bitcoin dominant. 
you know, that, that, that's a whole nother step up. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's something that has to be, it's still poorly understood and it's, it's best to share that and educate people on these kind of injustice dynamics that exist in the current system. I, I'm curious to get Anita's thoughts here, uh, because a lot of this, um, you know, a prime example of, of, um, a nation that can issue debt and, and versus not issue debt in their own currency, um, to the extreme, some of the exploitation that we see coming out of the CIFA zone and, and some of the stuff that's happening there, you know, with the, um, there, if I'm not mistaken, there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of unrest in, in that part of the world right now in and around that too. I'm just curious, Anita, have you, have you been any of those places where they're using the, the, the CIFA franc? No, I've only been to Ghana for the Afro-Bitcoin conference and I spent some time then there. So I cannot speak so much uh, to this area. I can speak more and underline uh, Lynn's words about Zimbabwe. I've spent uh, like eight months in total in Zimbabwe so far. And um, just to give people a example, what it really means when you have hundreds of percentage points of inflation, because we always hear like, oh, there's hyperinflation, yeah, but you can't imagine what it really means. And um, when I came first in 2020, um, in early 2019, the Zimbabwean government and the Reserve Bank issued the new Zimbabwean dollar. Another time, they tried their own currency. Um, at the same time, the US dollar is legal tender. So it's a multi-currency country. You can also pay with uh, South African rand there or with the, um, I don't know what the name is now from the currency, but uh, the currency from Botswana. Um, so you can use those um, as medium of exchange too. Um, and so in early 2019, um, they basically said from one day to the other, we are now issuing the new Zimbabwe dollar. And everyone in Zimbabwe who is holding a US dollar account on a Zimbabwean bank, um, no need to worry. This is now Zimbabwean dollar. So if you had like $10,000 in your bank, it was from one day to the other Zimbabwean dollar. And there were even big banners on the streets that say, said, don't worry, the uh, exchange rate will stay one to one. When I came to Zimbabwe in early 2020, the exchange rate was one to 28. Um, the next time I came uh, in uh, 2023, no, I was earlier there, but anyhow, in April this year, it was one to 1,400. In May, it was one to 4,000, and now it's one to 6,500. And what does this mean? A leaf of bread that everyone needs and everyone is eating there because, I don't know, it's a staple diet in a way. Um, everyone buys that. It had cost $1 in 2019, which is also one Zimbabwean dollar, or has been in 2019. And today, the same leaf of bread is costing 6,500 Zimbabwean dollar. And although people, of course, they want to use the US dollar because they know compared to their own current currency, the US dollar is totally stable. Um, and But they are not earning in, in US dollar. Most people only earn in Zimbabwe dollar. And um, it's totally true what uh, Lynn is saying. Of course, the wages are not rising in that same <clears throat> amount. I mean, they are not rising at all for most people. 
And uh, to be honest, I, I really don't know how people survive there. And uh, that's also the reason why everything is so rotten and broken down, because uh, I heard from a very um, a source that I really trust that the way it works is it's really the central bank is really printing money. Um, and then they are um, engaging so-called runners. These are people who are driving to the small towns and the small villages on the countryside. And there they sell the worthless Zimbabwean dollar for the US dollars of the people because the people need the Zimbabwean dollar to pay the school fees. So the, the elite, the, the, the people in power are really ripping off their people and their country. And um, there's also a great documentary called The Gold Mafia on YouTube. Uh, you only need to watch one episode and you really know what's going on there. And it's so sad. And it's also the number of countries uh, and people who live in countries with authoritarian rulers um, or broken democracies um, is rising every year. So that's the sad thing. I mean, it's a reason to be bullish on Bitcoin, but at the same time, it's very, very sad. And so um, it's unimaginable what's going on. And the sad thing also in Zimbabwe is because of its uh, dictatorship, um, you're really in danger if you use Bitcoin. I know now from three, three people, one person I personally know, and the other two um, where, where it was told, uh, I, 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 yeah, yesterday someone told me that they have been abducted by police um, and were questioned, where do you have that money from? Yeah. So, um, which is one reason why I believe that, for instance, in Zimbabwe, adoption will be very slow. I mean, there is adoption. I know a lot of people are using Bitcoin. More are using USDT because of the stable value. Um, but, but it's in the country. Um, but the liquidity is so low that uh, the local traders, the peer-to-peer -peer guys, uh, can actually ask for uh, fees up to 20% per trade, which is also said. I want to double quick uh, click on that real quick. I mean, you know, for example, Argentina has a history of confiscating dollars if you put them in bank accounts, similar to what Anita just described in terms of Zimbabwe, where they promise something and then that does not work out. And I know physicians or logistics experts in Egypt that literally hold physical cash dollars in their apartment as a form of savings like they you know they're they're here in 2023 and they've surveyed the landscape for various monetary technologies and they picked physical paper dollars as one as the key thing they want to hold for intermediate term value because that's the best thing available to them they don't want to put money in a local bank um, Egypt has not embraced, say, stable coins or Bitcoin in the way that Nigeria has yet so far. Um, they have gold as an option. There's some degree of volatility and high price spreads there. Um, you know, they can go into real estate, which is a very popular among Egyptians, where they'll buy, you know, first properties, second properties, third properties. Sometimes leave them empty. It's a, it's a type of malinvestment where you just buy property because you don't you don't know what else to do with it, but it's more scarce than the local currency. And when you see any environment where you see a physician stacking dollar bills in their apartment with no interest that they're earning, um, that shows that something's not going well. And in Egypt and other countries, 
even in terms of the local currency, you know, part of it you can say is mitigated by high interest rates. So if you're a wealthy Egyptian, you can put money in the bank and hold, you can get fairly high interest rates. So even though the Egyptian pound's devaluing, you're getting more Egyptian pounds in the process. But in those types of countries, banking access tends to be pretty low. Um, so, so not near the majority of people have banking access. And so on average, lower class, lower income people are unlikely to have a bank account. It's just not the overhead doesn't make sense for their their fairly small amount of value that they have. And so they're storing value in things like Egyptian pounds that are devaluing at 20% per year or Zimbabwe currency that's devaluing even faster. Um, and that's something that I think that a lot of people in the West don't realize. And then when they say, why does Bitcoin have value who would buy Bitcoin? It serves no purpose. There's no purpose for this. Fiat currency is sufficient. It's like, well, imagine yourself as a working class person, you know, roughly one of any one or two billion people in the world that live in these developing countries that has trouble at getting a bank account or even if you can get a bank account, it's not sufficient and you're just getting constantly diluted, right? So I think that part of this, what makes me bullish or what incentivizes me to make this more bullish is to make that easier for them to access. Yeah. Um, there was a quick question for Anita actually in the in the audience here. Rusty was asking, um, does Zimbabwe also get deflationary spikes from time to time where if you're holding US dollars, you actually might be in trouble or is it basically just more or less off the rails? It's, it's more or less up only. You have phases in between where it's stagnating on a level, but basically it's up only because, um, yeah, the people want to enrich themselves and um, there's all, all trust is gone. I mean, all trust is gone in the government. Uh, recently there were elections and um, I mean, uh, the old president is the new president, but there are, of course, also allegations of uh, manipulating the the, um, the results. Uh, but on the other hand, they don't even have to manipulate the results, I believe, because there's really voter intimidation going on. You know, on the one hand, uh, people in the rural areas and also in the cities, the poor people, they get seeds and oils and things uh, that they can use from the uh, governing uh, party, from the big party. So and also when you... Um, go to vote, they have their guys outside of the election booth, uh, basically telling you, yeah, what you know what you need to vote for. So this is not a democracy, this is, is a dictatorship. And uh, there it's even more dangerous and complicated to exit into Bitcoin also. Steve, I'm just wondering if, if you want to chime in on anything here. Yeah, I think uh, two things came to mind. Uh, listening to you guys talk um i think the first uh well one thing i'm actually quite bullish on actually physical bitcoin notes for some of these reasons there's a company that's coming out to pacific bitcoin noteworthy that has i think had some key innovations on like how to actually produce these in a verifiable way that's secure but where it's just literally paper money, but it's Bitcoin. And, you know, people can effectively spend it and trade it without actually moving the coins on chain. There's a, a secure element, basically, that like you have to destroy it to get the key. Um, whether, you know, with I don't want to get into like the specifics of the model, but that concept of actually a, a physical, completely off chain uh, key currency 
uh, I actually I really like for some of these re like areas where there are some of these like privacy concerns. There are some of these you know areas where you know internet connectivity is more of a challenge or various other reasons. So that's a that's a small point. But I've liked that idea since 2017. Um, and then the other is that uh, Lynn, I loved I loved the point you made, and I think it doesn't get made enough of like salary debasement as opposed to savings debasement, because we're all locked into these long-term year-to-year agreements on what we get paid. And I think most people, even in the US, like, especially if you adjust CPI for like what you did, like, okay, like take out the deflationary stuff and like, let's just look at, you know, your rent and your food and your medical bills and like, like I really question that there's very many people at all that are getting that sort of raise every year. And then, you know, that leads one into like, there's this phenomena in, in recent society in us of like, uh, people don't stay with companies anymore, which I think is rational for the individual. They'll, they'll job hop to get an increase in pay. They'll be with a company for a year or two, and then they'll just leave and go get a more senior role at another company. And, you know, it's different than like early America, where it was expected people would stay with a company for a long period of time, and the companies would take care of them and they'd grow together. Uh, but I almost wonder the thought occurred to me while you were talking, uh, and I haven't thought this through before, so it might be totally wrong, but um, of like that sort of like salaries, if you stay in one spot and don't have like a real jump in role, not actually even keeping pace with inflation, people intuit this maybe unconsciously and are, con are like constantly jumping to different companies, which I think is also like uniquely harmful on the notion of like institutional knowledge that it actually impairs the the accumulation of institutional knowledge and that like people because it's not just like a it's not just like a like a data set or like anybody with an mba can come in and do an equivalent job like um you know people learn embedded implicit knowledge functioning in organizations and if everyone's leaving after two years that's just bad for the whole system so curious your thoughts so I agree with that, and that's something I've referenced before, which is when you look at employee turnover, generally speaking, people try to get wages uh, increased uh, by a reasonable amount in their companies, and when they're unable to, largely due to anchoring bias. So as, for example, it's hard to convince an employer that you should get a 6% increase and say, well, the basket of non-deflationary goods went up by 4%, and also my seniority and productivity benefit is 2%. Therefore, I, I earn 6% more now. That's hard to get, but it's easier to get when they when they look to another employer and they say, look, here's my experience. Here's my full resume. I'm looking for a new job. Um, I'm super excited to join. They, they end up getting that wage increase. Maybe they get 7%, but then they have to deal with like moving frictions and, and retraining and things like that. So that's, that's all deleterious for productivity. Um, and so I, I think that's a valid point. And to the prior question that went to Anita, I'll, I'll double click on that for Egypt, which is that, you know, is it up only or are there periods of deflation? So for people that deal with like street market currencies and things like that, um, there's generally a risk of dealing with kind of off balance sheet interactions that they have to take on. Um, if they take on that risk, uh, it's mostly up only uh, in terms of dollar versus Egyptian pound or in the sense that you could go down by five or 10% in, in like 
periods where the Egypt is very trying to solidify the peg. Um, so you're risking five to 10% of the downside, but you're gaining upwards of a hundred percent on the upside. Um, and so the, it's mostly an up only scenario, but the thing that makes it complicated is that if you are upper middle class and you have access to bank accounts and things like that, when you compare Egyptian pounds that are earning interest compared to dollars, it's a little bit more of like a direct comparison where you can go multiple years where it's better to be holding Egyptian pounds earning, mm. say, 15% interest, mm. and then you get wrecked all at once, mm. right? And so it's hard to make that sell to people in real time because they're like any market, there's complexities to it, and volatility to it. And so with that interest contribution, it's not always up only. It's like you're losing, you're losing, you're losing, and then you get, and then you win all at once, and then you're losing, you're losing, you're losing, you win all at once again. Uh, and that's that's the hard part of any market. That's also why Americans don't invest in the stock market. Like if you have a working class person, they're like, I don't trust the stock market. I'm holding my savings because that volatility wrecks them over periods of time. Yeah, interesting. Um, I just wanted to tag on to Steve's initial uh, chat about physical you you honed in on on physical bitcoin bills yeah i just i just had a side note that i wanted to mention there um so the thing i find funny uh, that in a world where we had physical bitcoin bills is again here's the 100 100 trillion dollar uh zimbabwean bill uh from 2008 um, and this is, you know, some, I think somebody in the chat actually said that they have one of these and they use this as a bookmark, um, because it was just devalued so much that like the, all, all units lost all meaning, but I pulled up that company that you were talking about noteworthy yeah. and here's a 0 0.005 Bitcoin bill, uh, with Mises on it. And I like the one Bitcoin has Hal, but the funny thought to me would be in a Bitcoin that in a world that rapidly adopted Bitcoin, we would be adding decimal, like we'd be adding zeros yes. behind yes. the decimal. <laughs> we'd have we'd have millisats that were being denominated. It'd be a rapid uh, valuation of the currency instead of devaluation. Uh, anyways, I thought that was kind of neat, um, but <laughs> I'm glad you brought up that company. Kind of cool looking. Awesome. Um, all right. So guys, I think this is probably a good time to kind of begin uh, wrapping stuff up. What I like to do at the end of every show is I like to do just a quick round of any final thought that you may have, anything you want to sum up. And also, if you happen to have one, a recommendation for people. And so when I say recommendation, it could really be anything, something that you've found valuable in your journey. So something maybe there's... Um, uh, you know, a, a blog or a video or a book that you really valued. Maybe there's an app or a device that you found particularly useful, or maybe there's just like a, a bit of life advice or a, a personal experience that you'd like to imbue upon people uh, in their Bitcoin journey to kind of help them along. So I'll, I'll let you stew for a second and I'll try and buy you like a minute of time to figure out what you want to say. Uh, but I think, um, again, uh, the, the conversation here um in and around uh it, it, to me what kind of popped out the most was 
was how many different types of people are, are being affected by Bitcoin in different ways or how Bitcoin can affect so many people in so many different walks of life from all around the world. Uh, and we've, we've talked all the way from people that are, you know, very well off and, and their job is to uh, protect and, and protect the purchasing power of a lot of capital. And those people are kind of honing in on Bitcoin and understanding that this can help. But there's also people on the other side of society, the other fringe, where they're the most disenfranchised, the, the most hurt by, um, by the monetary regimes that they're living under. And they're also very much recognizing or there are pockets of them that are very much recognizing the value of Bitcoin. So we kind of have um, either side of the spectrum um, latching on and understanding Bitcoin in a way. And I think it'll begin to work its way in inwards to your everyday person as well over time. But the people that have the most to lose um, in terms of they're trying to protect the most capital and the people that have nothing to lose because they've been devastated by fiat currency, both are in a unique position to perhaps understand the value of Bitcoin before others that are in a more comfortable position. Um, so anyways, that, that was kind of my takeaway here. In terms of recommendation for me, um, I'm going to I'm going to kind of jump back to my earlier uh, uh, my my earlier topic and say if you haven't played with nunchuck just as um just as like a regular mobile wallet uh check it out like you can just go download it on your phone and just play around and see what you can do there because you can just add hot wallets you can add cold wallets as well you can construct multi-sigs but you can also do collaborative multi-sigs from afar in an encrypted chat there's all kinds of crazy things that they've they put in there and some of the advanced features that are kind of you know behind more behind the scenes you have to look for them um it's kind of wild what they're doing with it so uh, again i gotta give a hats off to hugo and and what's been and the whole nunchuck team for what's being built there um and i recommend you check it out there's i've got like 10 videos on nunchuck and the various things that it does. So go, go check them out. So that's where I'll leave it there. Uh, I'll then toss it to Anita to get any final thoughts and recommendations you may have. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Final thoughts. I found this was a very fruitful, uh, chat or conversation we had with each other. And, um, where I said about the global Bitcoin summit, um, I'm yes, I'm really bullish because I'm in the space now since early 2017. And uh, as far as I can remember, there were a handful of people in Austria, at least, uh, who were interested in Bitcoin. And uh, what I've seen this summer when I spent some time in Austria, suddenly people who are asking me, what am I doing? And I tell them I'm a Bitcoin educator. They say to me, oh, yeah, now ah, I have have heard this guy is using it now too because his bank account was closed uh he's a comedian and i don't know for which reason but now he's using bitcoin to collect donations so um we have gone a long way and i believe there is a lot to come and my recommendation uh, actually it's two recommendations so the first recommendation um, coming from the human rights perspective i recommend everyone to uh, watch or share my documentary that's on my YouTube list and also on Twitter on my uh, pinned on the profile. It's about how Bitcoin enforces human rights. 
And the second recommendation I give is please start earning Bitcoin and spending Bitcoin because it's not only a tool for investment or saving to the future, uh, it's also money and we can grow adoption, I believe, if we all were to start using Bitcoin. I'm almost earning, like I would say 95% of my earnings are in Bitcoin and um, it's fantastic to use. And whenever you think you lose money because you're spending it now, like the pizza guy, just buy it back or earn it back and you'll be good. Yeah, I love that. And yes, go. Uh, I just shared it on the screen for a second, but uh, go uh, check out Anita's pin, pinned uh, uh, tweet for that documentary. All of everybody's uh, on, on the show, they're uh, they're. Twitter profiles or their X, pro I can't you get used to it. Their X profiles are, are in the show notes. So, With your so, Twitter forever. Don't give in. Don't give yeah. in. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. Awesome. Steve, how about you? Final thoughts, recommendations? Well, you know what you just did, man. You know what's about to happen. So mm -hmm. I recommend that you see the sun for at least 20 minutes immediately upon waking. Then throughout the day, as frequently as you can, Get at least like a 10 minute sunbreak. Um, walk at least 5,000 steps, at least, or ideally 10,000 steps per day. Once the sun goes down, really red light only, but the yellower or orange, the more orange light you can do, the better for your circadian rhythm and sleep cycle. Upon waking, eat within 30 minutes. That's my life advice. I love that. That's great. I gotta, I gotta, uh, I was aware of some of those tidbits, but I think I, I need to, uh, I need to actually act on a couple of those because sometimes I can slack a bit. Awesome. Thanks for that, Steve. <laughs> um, I'll and come to Pacific Bitcoin. Yes. Yes. I'm very excited to get down there. It's going to be a lot of fun. Highly recommend. It was a blast last year. Um, Lynn, I'm going to toss to you. Final thoughts, recommendations. So I guess as a basic shill, check out Broken Money, the book. Uh, it's very educational. Um, but I think the more substantive thing I'll recommend is that I have to double click on uh, the nunchuck recommendation and the broader idea of making things very accessible to people. So a lot of people approach self-custody as though it's rocket science, as though they have to defend against like the Ocean's Eleven's team coming in to get their Bitcoin. <laughs> and that's that's not how they're going to lose their Bitcoin 99 times out of 100. They're going to lose their Bitcoin because they mess up the seed, they do something too complex, or even more more common than that, they never get started because they're too busy thinking about the Ocean's Eleven scenario or that they're going to lose it, right? Mm -hmm. So they just don't start. And so instead they trade Shiba Inu on Coinbase <laughs> and they never they never get a hardware wallet. And so like Nick Batia's, uh, literally his like, you know, undergraduate class at USC was filled with more people, like seven out of 30 that traded Shiba Inu and like three out of 30 that had a hardware wallet ever, right? And so that's the scenario we end up in. And so I think the important thing is if you're a Bitcoin user, if you're a consumer, check out some of the really easy to use solutions. And I, I, I think Nunchuck plus TapSigner mm. is a super easy combination that is really hard to go wrong with. You can set up, you know, experiment with a mobile wallet that's free, back up your seed phrase, bring Bitcoin to it, test it out. And then if you want to upgrade from there, get a $30 TapSigner. Yeah. build from there if you want to go you know if you have enough bitcoin that it starts to matter beyond that then look into hardware wallets but at least start with that basic setup 
it's better to start from from something simple and it's going to solve 99 percent of your problems you know maybe not the oceans 11 scenario but you're still pretty good and if you're a designer or if you're a bitcoin company just keep in mind that like the vast majority of bitcoin users are going to be like drivers today they're not going to know the intricacies that are under the hood of their car you know the best you can hope for is that they're going to know a handful of things. They, they have to put gas into it. They have to check the oil. They know to look at a couple dials, things like that. You know, you're not completely ignorant to how your car works. And ideally, you know as much as possible about your car. But things have to be reasonably good and simple and dummy-proof user mm-hmm. experience if you're going to hope for adoption and widespread usage. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of Bitcoiners – build things for themselves like they're cypherpunks and they build things for other cypherpunks yeah. we have to build things for the common intelligent yeah. person which is they have a day job but they want to hold good money and they just don't want to mess it up and they just mm-hmm. want like a 99 percent solution that's going to solve as many of their problems as possible without being you know maybe covering every edge case and i think that's a huge yeah. market to go after and if you're a user just that's the market to consider you know yeah. don't worry about the hardcore stuff just Get nunchuck, get a tap signer, explore that type of thing. Yeah, I, I'm so glad that you're you're uh, shilling the nunchuck tap signer combo. It's such a and I'm not, and I'm not paid by nunchuck by the way. Yeah. I just I used it so much that I literally helped break it and helped find bugs, and <laughs> I love it. It's great, and honestly, like the tap signer, like the the one thing about the tap signer as well that makes it kind of cool, especially if you're traveling around a lot is you you have this instead of having just like a hot wallet on your phone you've got a situation where you can have something that's very discreet like when's the last time you went through tsa and they're like excuse me could you empty out your wallet so we can look at each individual credit card that you have because like this this just slides into your wallet and it just looks they even have a tap signer that looks like a hotel key card Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you can go that route if you want a tinfoil hat it and still get some pretty damn good security, uh, on the go. So anyways, and I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of side note, I'll wait, I'll wait until we're, uh, fully wrapped, but I am doing a mult, uh, a tap signer, nunchuck, multi-sig workshop in LA the day after, um, the day after Pacific Bitcoin. So stick around and I'll, I'll, I'll shill it at the end after, after everybody heads out. But, um, so I'm going to, I'm going to wrap this up here. Um, I just wanted to say to all of you, uh, this is such a great chat. I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I thank all of you for your time. I realized that I ran a solid half hour over the estimated the 90 minutes is more of a guideline. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I do appreciate that you guys all stayed for such an awesome chat and everybody in the, uh, in the chat that was here partaking as well. Thank you guys for being here too. Um, and, uh, yeah, all of you are welcome back anytime. Uh, how many of you are going to be in LA? Steve and Lynn, I know Anita, are you around for it? Oh, it's too bad. I, I'm yeah. sure I will be seeing you again soon, though. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, I appreciate you. And have a great weekend. Thank See you. you. Thank too. you. Bye. Thanks, guys. All right. Uh, everybody watching, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you all. What a great time. What a legendary panel. Uh, again, uh, 
you know, one of one of my favorite shows in recent memory. It's so wonderful to have all of them here. Um, of course, uh, if you've enjoyed watching the show, tap that like button. It's just below the screen there. Really, it it honestly does help a lot when you guys are smashing that like button all the time. Um, YouTube seems to like it. Or uh, I saw people in the chat. Uh, can you get on Rumble so I can watch there? It is on Rumble. It's on. It's live on Rumble. It's also live on Noster. Uh, so all my Nostriches out there watching, I appreciate you as well. Um, and then also it goes live to Twitter as well. X, whatever. Um, <laughs> but it's there nonetheless. Uh, anyways, I did. Uh, I'm going to do my quick show for the workshop in L.A. before we wrap up here, of course. So, yeah, I'm going to be down in L.A., uh, on, um, for Pacific Bitcoin. So Pacific Bitcoin is coming up, uh, this Thursday and Friday next of this coming week. So October 5th and 6th. And then I'm doing my workshop series on the 7th, the Saturday, uh, which I'm very excited about. I'm doing two of them. So first thing in the morning on Saturday, I'm doing a nunchuck and tap signer multi-sig workshop. And so what's going to happen there is one, you're going to learn how to use uh, nunchuck wallet. You're also going to learn how to use um, the tap signer and then you're going to have multiple tap signers and you're going to create a multi-sig inside of Nunchuck. Uh, so that's going to be uh, pretty cool. So I'm very excited about that. Um, also, uh, in the afternoon, we're going to do a cold card deep dive. I've done a lot of these. Um, and so I'm very excited to do one again. And so the cold card deep dive is basically how the hell do you set up and use a cold card? We're going to, you know, start from scratch, set one up. Uh, we're going to import it to Sparrow Wallet on desktop. We're going to learn how to do air gap transactions and, and move things back and forth. We're also going to wipe the device entirely and recover it. Uh, from your seed phrase. And then we're also going to dive into some of the advanced features, some of the Uncle Jim stuff, some of the, um, you know, passphrase stuff, all kinds of stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm very excited for it. There's only, I think, two tickets left for the cold card workshop and uh, maybe four left for the tap sign or multi-sig workshop. So if you want to grab them, there's a QR code on the screen right now that you can just scan. It'll take you right to the page. Um, anyways, guys, uh, I'll start to wrap up here. For, again, thank you so much. This was an absolute blast. I really enjoyed having everybody on. Uh, if you can tap that like button, that's huge. If you want to help the show, you can hit up the sponsors I'll mention down below. And if you're curious about anything else, head over to my website, btcsessions.ca. You can book me for one-on-ones or also find the ticket info for the workshops. With that, I'm out. Have yourselves a wonderful day or evening. And I will see you guys next time for your daily session. Bitcoin.